Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kiotomai. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World. Tonight we're discussing 1080 and science denial, and let's get straight down to business. Hello, everybody. I have called an Our Changing World summit to discuss some of the issues raised in a new book by Dave Hansford. That book is Protecting Paradise, 1080 and the Fight to Save New Zealand's Wildlife. First up, can everyone introduce themselves, please? Hi, Alison. I'm Dave Hansford. I'm a freelance science and environment writer. I'm Peter Griffin. I'm the director of the Science Media Centre. Hello, I'm Graham Elliott. I'm a scientist at the Department of Conservation, work on 1080 and birds and beasts. Great to have you all here. Let's kick off, Dave, with you. Can you summarise for us what is 1080, why is it used in New Zealand, and what motivated you to write a book about it? Well, 1080 is uh, the salt form of um, a naturally occurring toxin that gets reproduced in the leaves of certain plants. For our purposes, of course, that um, chemical formula is, is simply synthesised in a factory. It was designed as an insecticide originally, but turns out it wasn't especially good at that. But fortunately for New Zealand, it's very good at knocking over mammals. And of course, you know, so many of our um, pest animals in New Zealand are mammals. What motivated you to write the book about it? Well, I think somebody had to. There have been a great many books that have come out uh, opposing 1080, and that may be why I think there's an awful lot of people out there who are still confused uh, around 1080. They're not quite sure who or what to believe. So I thought it might be helpful if I could assemble up a body of evidence in respect of what the science is telling us about 1080 uh, and add a few first-hand accounts and just give them a different perspective. Great. Now, Graham, you work as a scientist for DOC on research programs around the use of 1080 in natural environments, and I understand you're very busy at the moment because DOC's in the middle of using aerial drops of 1080 around the country for its second battle for our birds. What's battle for our birds? Why is it needed and what's happening? We've got a, a general pest problem in, in New Zealand with rats, stoats, possums, cats, ferrets, you know, the whole works. But in, in beech forests in particular, and in the South Island, when the beech forests seed and flower, which they only do every few years, you get huge crops of seed which lead to huge crops of rats and mice because they eat the seeds, and then, you get a, and then you get a plague of stoats following on afterwards. And it's during these plagues of rats, mice and stoats that our native forest birds get absolutely hammered. So we've got a sort of general decline going on in the forest birds, but we've also got these um, sort of catastrophic episodes when the beech trees seed and the rats and mice and stoats go mad. So one of those is happening right now. And in response to that, the department's sowing 1080 poison over about 840,000 hectares, something like that, um, to, to kill the rats, stoats, mice and possums. And so this is the biggest 
go we've ever had at doing this in the big, largest area of forest. So it's a really big thing. And it's happening right now. We're sort of right in the middle of it. So some of the operations are sort of half done. That when you use 1080 to control rats, mites, stoats and possums, you, you do it in two goes. You sow non-toxic baits to start with to get the animals used to eating it. And then you sow toxic stuff a couple of weeks later. So we've, we've finished a few places, but most of them either haven't started or they've just had the pre-feed done. So your role in all of this is to gather evidence-based science, to quantify the consequences, both good and bad, on both the introduced animals that we're trying to control and get rid of, the native animals we're trying to look after protect. Is that hard to do? Yeah, it's quite hard to do. So we measure rats, mice, stoats, cats, the works, mostly using tracking tunnels. So we've got a huge network of tracking tunnels out in these forests that we're treating. We've got 14,000 tracking tunnels out there. Most people might have seen a tracking tunnel. It's a sort of little tunnel, and in it you put a card. Part of the card is inked so that when an animal walks through the tunnel, it leaves its inky footprints all over the rest of the card. And we bait these these um, tunnels with either peanut butter, if we're trying to track rats and mice or with um, rabbit meat if we're trying to track stoats. So we've got a network of these all over the country and using these we can measure the changes in abundance of the rats, stoats and mice. And so this gets used in two ways. We use it to trigger the operations because we do the operations when the rat, mouse and stoat numbers are rising. So we have to know that they are rising. So these tracking tunnels let us know that that's happening. And we use them to see whether their operations have done what we hope they will do. That's kill the baddies. That in itself is a big operation. You can imagine 14,000 tracking tunnels takes an awful lot of person power out in the scrub to, to, get a, to get a result back. And then as well as that, we monitor, each year we try and monitor a few key species about, usually we're picking on species about which we're uncertain what's going to happen to them when we use 1080. We know for most forest bird species their numbers are declining and they're declining because they're being killed by rats, mice and possums and stoats. So, um, and in general terms, it makes sense that if you, if you kill the baddies with poison, then the, the, the goodies, the birds, should do better. But, of course, you're, you're not sure that you're actually killing enough of the baddies to have the benefits on the birds. And, and for some species, there's a risk that they might be killed by the poison themselves. So we have to measure all of these things to see what's going on. So each year we pick on a bunch of species to see what's happening. This year we've picked on great-spotted kiwis. We're measuring rock wrens, robins, fear or blue ducks, and there's another few species that we've been monitoring in earlier years which are kind of finishing off, that's robins and weka. And for each of those species, you need a team of people out in the scrub running around catching them, putting radio tags on them, and seeing whether they're killed by the 1080, and, and then how their numbers go afterwards. And usually what you see is that because the 1080's killed all the baddies, the rats, stoats and possums, the numbers of the birds just skyrocket. Now I'll come to you, Peter, with, from your perspective of the mm. Science Media Centre. Why is evidence-based science, like the kind that Graham's collecting, mm. why, why is it important? Why does it matter? I think it's really important because Kiwis want to base their decisions, whether they're voting or their behaviour in their everyday lives, on evidence. So they respect evidence, and they respect, in this country, the people who give us evidence. So trust in scientists is very high in New Zealand. The government surveys scientists every couple of years, and it comes through very strongly that trust is high, interest is high in science and, and evidence. But people don't relate to it very well on a day-to-day -day basis. It's too complex for them. So it's really important that on complex, controversial issues like 1080, that the science, the evidence base underpinning its use 
is really well communicated and articulated. And uh, so at the Science Media Centre, we're doing this on all sorts of issues from 1080 to climate change to to stem cell research. What is the evidence base underpinning these technologies and how should we be using them? So that's all fine and good. But as I learned recently when I was in Brussels with Sir Peter Gluckman, at a, at a, our, our chief science advisor at a big scientific conference there, we are living in what has been called a, a world of post-normal science. So this is a situation where the old linear model of gathering scientific evidence and then disseminating that evidence to the public isn't really working as well as it used to, to, to do. Scientists now have to engage at a much deeper level with society. There's a lot more distrust now of evidence. And in the wake of Brexit and the rise of Donald Trump in America, there's talk of um, post-truth politics that the facts don't matter anymore. I think what I learned in Europe and what I hear every day here in New Zealand is that people still want to make their decisions based on evidence and on facts. But there is this growing distrust of the processes of formulating that evidence and disseminating it. So people really need to trust in their government, in the officials who, who are putting together policy based on evidence. That has started to break down from what I hear in Europe. The last thing we, we want is that to happen here because then we lose the public so that evidence-based programs like Battle for the Birds uh, won't be funded and won't be carried out, and that would be a real disaster. Dave, let's bring you back in here. You write quite a lot in your book about uh, science denial, this sort of mis-science, anti-science. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yes, certainly. I want to point out first, though, that there is no um, single, I guess, characterisation of science denial. You might use that term if you wanted to explain a whole range of reasons that people oppose something like 1080. It's important to remember that a lot of people just simply feel uneasy uh, or ethically uh, opposed to the notion of spreading poison about the place. Now, that's not a stance that I have any issue with whatsoever. I mean, I can only respect an ethical position, uh, and, and neither is it what the book takes aim at either. Uh, the book concerns itself more with what I would have called uh, a more organised uh, attempt. Probably I would describe it as putting up rhetorical arguments, I guess, to give the appearance of a legitimate debate where, in actual fact, there is none. These are attempts to sort of erode scientific consensus, I guess, discredit uh, scientific evidence, all that sort of thing. So this is things like cherry-picking results, perhaps? Yeah. When you look harder at science denial, there are probably a half a dozen um, characteristic traits and tactics that I certainly identified in a great deal of organised 1080 opposition, um, and they range from all sorts of things like um, trying to uh, discredit, I guess, the um, legitimacy of the science. Sometimes uh, they attack the integrity of the scientists themselves. Um, there are these charges of collusion, for instance, and um, corruption, this notion that this is all one vast uh, government um, conspiracy. So that's a, a very common theme. Um, another one is, um, of course, this idea of trotting out your own experts, um, and these are invariably people who have never published uh, any peer-reviewed 
or novel research of their own, but this generally takes the form of what I would call critiques, if you like, of the existing literature, uh, which have been thoroughly cherry-picked uh, to try to present 1080 and the research in a really bad light. So those are some very common themes throughout the ranks of science denial. I totally relate to all of that and, and everything from the use of fluoride in, in the water supply to, to climate change to vaccination uh, to genetic modification. I've, I've seen all of those tricks played out um, and they, a lot of them come from the climate deniers handbook really. So all of those things that Dave mentioned are playing out. The question is, does it, does it really matter? Have we got to the point now where some of these views are so marginalised that it doesn't actually matter? When it comes to something like fluoride, that's not the case. We have a situation in New Zealand where parts of the country are fluoridated, others are not. And we've seen attempts to overturn that policy where fluoridation of the water actually happens, like in Hamilton, where uh, the, the councillors there a few years ago initially made a decision to remove fluoride from the water. That was overturned when there was a, a public re referendum. So where does the use of 1080 lie sort of on that spectrum? And I would argue that we've turned a corner. In 2011... Uh, Dr. Jan Wright, the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, put out a report endorsing the use of 1080, discouraging the Parliament from um, putting a moratorium on use of 1080, which is what a lot of anti-1080 campaigners were, were pushing for. And so we thought this is going to reignite the debate. It's going to be very nasty in the wake of this. The next day, the lead editorials in our big metropolitan dailies were endorsing Jan Wright's position on this. And I think it, it really uh, opened up in the mainstream media, which is what most people are reading and listening to and, and watching. It led to a real change in how the mainstream media covers this whole issue and a much more responsible approach to it, I think. So I think th things have changed there for the better. There's, there are still those um, extremes, and we've seen... Uh, and I keep a very close eye on this, particularly in regional areas, small town newspapers, for instance, they still run these views quite prominently. And I've talked to editors and reporters about why that is. And they say to me, look, these people are part of our community. We cannot ignore their views. And we've seen this, for instance, with homeopaths, where they get entire columns in, in small newspapers because they're part of the community. In some cases, they, they run ads in the newspaper as well. So small town newspapers are under pressure. They need to get the support of their community. And in parts of the country, that includes people who are really opposed to use of 1080. So I can sort of understand where they're coming from. But by and large, I think the message for what Dave calls in his book, the moderate majority, I think most people... Uh, endorse this use. The government's policy is to use it. So we're not at risk of that changing anytime soon. That doesn't mean that we should ignore the people who have genuine concerns about the use of 1080 because there are genuine concerns. And all that stuff I said about post-normal science, the response to that is to engage these people more effectively. What do you have to say to that, Dave? I think Peter's raised a very good point about, uh, and I discovered the same stark uh, difference or contrast, if you like, between the way Metro Dailies typically report science-based issues, not just 1080, uh, and the way that uh, local papers do. And I agree with him. I think there are a, a very special set of uh, pressures on uh, regional journalists. But I do think that there are now uh, a couple of other emerging factors which are threatening to undo a lot of the good that Jan Wright's report um, did uh, back in 2011. And by that I'm, I'm referring now to the fact that um, 1080 has been raised again as a political football 
I guess, in an attempt to court votes from the hunting community and the outdoors community. And so there are different motivations going on. Uh, they tend to be much better organised and much better funded and backed. And so we have, I guess, a new element to that whole complex of science denial uh, and it's one which, of course, featured prominently in climate change, which was, I guess, more organised um, political front group and think tank kind of um, opprobrium, which is um, a, quite a difficult thing to, to counteract, I think. Graham, I'd be interested just to know, from your perspective as a frontline scientist who, who probably has to deal with a lot of people probably not so much coming to you saying you're doing a great job, but probably coming trying to say you're doing a terrible job. Is the kind of feedback you're getting from people changing? Is it different now to what it was three, four years ago? It's better from my perspective that we're not, we're not getting rubbished as much as, as we used to. But, like, I do quite a bit of public speaking about our 1080 operations, and there's still there's a bunch of people who come along the, the, the middle ground who, who listen carefully and... and try and understand, you know, the ideas you're putting forward. And there's always a bunch of people there that it doesn't matter what anyone says, they have, they're just making the same arguments over and over again and it's not evidence-based. And they're always there. That hasn't changed. So I think there's a lot of people in the middle ground of this argument who have been persuaded by the evidence that, that's been put up over, over the last few years and the fact that the Battle for Our Birds operations have, have, have happened and there's been no disasters. But there's still a lot of people on the fringes who, who are well, completely unaffected by evidence and perhaps don't even want to listen to it. I mean, what we hear from psychologists and social scientists is that it's really hard to change the minds of those people. They hear something, they read something that they perceive to be a fact. Mm. All around them are people who believe the same facts. So what can we do about that? Just telling them, no, you're wrong, here's the correct information, is clearly not going to change their opinion. What do you do about that? What do you think, Peter? Well, one of the, the things that the literature shows is effective is when people hear from other people that they trust, these messages reinforced. So, for instance... Uh, if, if you're trying to convince the business community to change its ways uh, to reduce emissions, there's no good a bunch of climate scientists turning up to a, a business forum to talk about this. They want to hear that from their own business leaders. And we've seen in recent years the likes of the, the chief executive of Air New Zealand really get on the front foot about biofuels, for instance, and about reducing emissions from all the planes they're flying around the world. So that is a big factor, where the message is coming from. And I think, you know, in, in, in the whole 1080 space, really we're, we're down to, when it comes down to it, it's the deer stalkers, it's hunters who are the, the hard rump uh, of people who are opposed to 1080 use. And um, so what are their issues and how can we address those? And some of them are, are, are being tackled with um, baits that deer don't want to eat, for instance. That's been a project that's been going on for a long time now. Do we need to have a, a very engaging conversation with them about where in the country they should be able to, to hunt freely and other places that they're not going to be able to because 1080 is used there to a larger degree. So how do we have these conversations in a more engaging way, um, get their feedback, but also at the same time find people who are moderate about this, who are convinced by the evidence, because I still fundamentally think most people want to make decisions in their lives based on evidence. Find those leaders to actually... Uh, be disseminating those messages. And I think once you've got those on board, you start to make progress. And we have seen the the tide turn a bit or start to change when it comes to climate change and post 
the Paris conference. We're starting to hear from prominent uh, ministers, from prominent business people, that we need to actually do something to honour those commitments we've, we've made in Paris. And it's about getting those key influencers on board. Speaking of engaging conversations, David, did you find it difficult or easy to engage the anti-1080 lobby in, in the writing of your book? Uh, as a group, I found it exceedingly difficult because, as I've said, I think, in the preface, that uh, a missive went out uh, right across Facebook urging all opponents not to talk to me uh, nor to cooperate in any way with this project, um, which I think says quite a lot about science denial uh, in itself. But, um, no, fortunately, though, I, I did have some people out there who, on pure strength of conviction, um, were happy to talk with me and share their views. And it was really important that they did that, of course, because that would have been a looming gap in the narrative without them. To go back very quickly to what um, Peter was saying about, you know, perhaps persuading hunters um, of the validity of, of deer repellents and the, and the rest of it, I think... That's an excellent initiative, and it's one that fortunately can be sort of discussed in quite objective and clear-cut terms. And I don't believe for a moment that the hunting community is impervious to good hard evidence. I do believe, though, that there is a different sector out there which would be a much tougher nut to crack, and that I can only describe that sector as the true believers. I mean, it's perfectly clear to me that 1080 opposition has, I guess, attained a sort of a, a belief system status out there. For many people, it's almost a lifestyle now. And I have seen no evidence that any amount of advocacy mm. or any amount of evidence or case studies, all the benefits that um, Graham put so much time and effort into articulating for people, I've seen no evidence uh, that those people are even open to that kind of stuff. Uh, and that, I think, presents us with a big challenge, uh, particularly in light of the fact, of course, that we now have the government's endorsement, officially now, of Predator Free 2050. Now, clearly, we're going to need public licence to prosecute that, that project. It's a fantastic vision. But when you speak to, I guess, the, the pest control experts, the people who will be charged with um, making this happen out there at the front end, they will all tell you that technology is not our problem, that actually public approval uh, remains their, their biggest concern. That comes up in a number of forums, for instance, the whole idea of predator-free on Stewart Island. You, you know, what it comes down to is actually the community down there has to buy in. Yes, that's right. And I mean, it, it throws up some really interesting democratic issues as well. Uh, you have an example um, in the Hawke's Bay at the moment where, you know, quite a courageous move, I think, um, by the council up there who have enacted legislation that uh, they've set 75% as a consensus point. They need 75% agreement that uh, pest control will continue, uh, and that includes public uh, and private land. And um, that's all the mandate they consider they need now. And I think that kind of enabling legislation, we're probably going to see a bit more of that coming on now. So science denial, what other big public policy challenges do you think it might throw at us? Oh, <laughs> the sky's the limit. I mean, <clears throat> we already lost, I consider, two valuable decades arguing with the deniers over climate change. I think that, that cost us far too much time and future generations will rue that loss. 
Uh, and I think in terms of public health, Peter's already alluded to uh, fluoridation. You know, we've got New Plymouth dentists now just bemoaning uh, the burgeoning rates of tooth decay, all the extractions they now have to do on young children since fluoride was taken out in 2011. Uh, we've seen the measles outbreaks across New Zealand caused by unvaccinated children. You name it, it goes on and on. I mean, there are still a great many primary schools um, that are teaching creationism. So... You know, these are all really important elements where I guess uh, science denial and all its various manifestations is still making quite significant inroads into people's quality of life. And I think there's a huge challenge out there for public policy uh, as to just how to address it. Because, as I said earlier, I don't think there's any evidence that uh, more advocacy uh, has necessarily done anything uh, to allay it. Yeah, and look, um, I think when you when you get down to that hardcore that are still peddling those anti-science messages, you're really in a in a case of containment, and so that's why we're, we encourage scientists to get on the front foot about this. And they sort of say, well, look, the science is sort of settled on this issue. Why do I have to keep trotting this line out? Because the public forgets that we we need proactive experts constantly reinforcing these messages, and we've seen examples in New Zealand of of where they haven't, where they've got complacent, and it's really gone against them. We saw in 2009 a very evidence-based uh, proposal to put folate in, in bread in New Zealand to to try and combat neural tube defects. That was uh, opposed by a very powerful lobby, and it didn't happen in the end. Uh, so we've seen time and time again when when science is missing, that vacuum is filled by others who are often peddling pseudoscience and they get the upper hand and in the age of social media we see all sorts of semi-official looking reports being produced from anti-fluoride campaigners, anti-1080 campaigners. It has this veneer of credibility. You have retired scientists coming out of the woodwork who are, who are adding their name to that. So that is a real issue and science needs to be really proactive. But I think when it comes to predator-free 2050 Increased use of 1080 is, is going to face some resistance, but to, to, to meet those really ambitious targets, we're going to have to look at some other technologies. And the big one that no one wants to talk about is gene-based ones. We have seen huge advances in genetic modification. We, we, we now have, uh, by the month, huge changes in what's possible with gene editing, with so-called gene drives. We've seen the use of gene editing, for instance, to combat the spread of the Zika virus with mosquitoes so we could sterilize mosquitoes and hopefully wipe out a population. Could we do the same thing for possums? Well, in recent years in New Zealand, we haven't even been talking about this because it's so unacceptable uh, to the public. Uh, so in the next 10, 10 or 20 years, we're going to see a lot more use of 1080 to, to try and con contain pests in, this New in, in New Zealand. It's these emerging technologies that may actually get us to that target that we're going to have to really socialise with the public and have that discussion about what are the pros and cons of their use. And we should be starting it now? Yeah, absolutely. As, as Dave said, we, we literally lost 10 or 20 years in this, in this whole discussion. And there was some great research that was going on, particularly around genetic uh, options for this. That sort of went on the back burner because of pu public opposition. Uh, to that, so we need to have a serious discussion again about do we want want to use the best technology to achieve these aims. Graham Peter talks about scientists needing to step up and, and talk about things. You are in the firing line. You're the spokesperson for Doc on Ten Eighty. Does it get a little wearying being attacked all the time? Well, yes, it does a bit, um, but and it also uses up a lot of time. 
I suppose one of the things I was thinking about as I listened to these two very eloquent fellows talk about this was that uh, scientists are trained not necessarily to be great spokesmen f- f- you know, for their field. It's, and and a, a lot of scientists are quite nerdy. I'm, I'm a nerdy fellow and I've, I have to steel myself to do this kind of thing. So we need good scientists doing the work in the background to, t- you know, to get the information to know what we should be doing. But we need perhaps another group of people, or maybe like Dave, and Peter, uh, presenting this stuff, have got the skills to put it across in a better manner than people like I can. I'd like to add something to what um, Graham just said. I, I think he's, he's absolutely right. But I also wanted just to point out that I think people, if we're talking about this, um, you know, the, the um, middle majority again, I think they respond especially well to exemplars, I guess, of success. Um, and that's something, of course, that Graham's been working really hard on, is trying to show people evidence of the benefits uh, from pest control. What happens when we get these um, stoats and rats and possums off the birds' backs? And I think that, well, I would like to think, certainly, that there will, it will gain a collective head of steam. I think with every success that we can demonstrate, I think that middle majority some of their anxieties will start to ease when they appreciate just the kind of benefits that we can realise and when they start seeing forests that are filling back up with birds and when they they do see a lizard for the first time in their garden and all that kind of thing. I think that's quite powerful, motivating stuff. But hand in glove with that, I think we still need to see something of a, uh, an adjustment, a step change, in fact, in the way media reports science-based issues because... Uh, as I allude to in the book, uh, I'm not at all satisfied that the traditional tenet of balance, uh, as it's applied to, certainly as it's applied to uh, reporting science issues, uh, is necessarily working for us. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We're dealing with a, a media at the moment that's less resourced than ever before. There are less journalists covering a broader range of issues, uh, and we find when it comes to science-related issues, often it's it's junior reporters who get thrown onto the science round. We've got a big mega-merger coming, potentially. It's before the Commerce Commission. Our two big newspaper groups may come together. We're also seeing on our current affairs shows, for instance, a lot more opinion-driven content as well, so people are actually voicing an opinion in slots that before were reserved for hard current affairs. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. We're seeing more opinion but we're also seeing an audience that responds well to that sort of content, and that is very much driven by the opinionated nature of social media. And TV and radio has had to adapt to that, and, and newspaper columnists as well. So how can we harness that? And it goes back to my point, I think, about about these key influencers. If we want to change public sentiment and behavior on some of these issues and in an evidence-based way, we really need to harness those key people. And sure, it may be opinionated and it may make traditional you know, former journalists like myself uncomfortable, but maybe that is the way to get through to some of these uh, audiences in the age of social media where we have fragmented audiences, they have so much choice in terms of where they go to for news that they can exist in their own echo, echo chamber. So we need to spread these messages further afield than ever before. But you raise there that thing of echo chambers and there is this great fear that all social media is doing is just creating smaller and smaller echo chambers you know the algorithms are curating your content so that mm. they know that if you like that kind of content they're just going to give you more of it mm-hmm. and people are going to end up in their own little corners never hearing from from other sides yeah i mean i think i think it's definitely a, a growing problem but 
you know, when I talk to TV producers and uh, newspaper editors, they say, look, look at the statistics. Most people are still coming to us to get their news on science-related issues. So 400,000 people are tuning into Seven Sharp. A couple of hundred thousand people a day are reading the New Zealand Herald. So, And often it's those articles that are actually feeding the discussion on social media. So the, the media still has a very important role and will continue, arguably more important than ever in future. And it will morph and change and it will look different. And there will be new players probably as soon as next year that will emerge and have large audiences. But they'll still be very important. That curation and that judgment that journalists go into choosing these issues and hopefully being responsible about how they cover particularly science and health and environment-related issues. That's very important. I think they do take their responsibility very seriously. They are under more pressure than ever before. That's the only problem. Yeah, I agree with Peter entirely there. I think that this um, and that factionalising influence of uh, the online landscape, I think, you're absolutely right. It certainly isn't helping. Um, if anything, it seems to be, in my uh, experience, creating almost a form of tribalism out there. Um, so that's certainly something that we're going to have to watch. Um, in terms of mainstream media, yeah, I, I still think there's this unfortunate alignment between the, the business models of both science denialists and the media. And I'm not for a moment suggesting that this is complicit. It's entirely coincidental. But both of them have a lot to gain from the perpetuation of the illusion of a debate, mm. even when, you know, from a scientific perspective, there's, there's nothing but consensus. Well, that certainly held up the climate change debate for a long time, the need, where they kept wheeling in climate change deniers when the science was incontrovertible. It certainly did. And, of course, uh, that was because um, organised denialists, they, they spotted that gap that they could exploit in the journalistic process. And, you know, I'm referring here to this notion of balance or, or getting two sides to every story. Now, we have a classic instance of this. Just this week, um, both Graham and I participated in an interview after which the reporter went off to talk with a prominent anti-1080 activist. Now, that, that reporter was only doing what they had been trained to do this is almost an article of faith that they must go out and get the other side of the story. But I guess the contention in the book uh, is that, you know, in science-based issues, where we're really trying to talk in objective terms, that model just doesn't work. I mean, balance would imply a certain parity of merit, if you like, between commentators. But from a science perspective, you know, it's clear to me that the comments of a qualified expert like Graham here, you know, he's researched this stuff for his, practically his entire adult life, weighed against those of an activist who's promoting maybe some ideological perspective or is solely motivated by securing an agenda, in this case banning 1080. I, th I think that, that the model is deeply flawed. You know, it depends, I guess, whether you consider that journalists should simply um, hold a mirror up to their communities, and Peter's already explained that, you know, that's the way a great many um, local newspapers prefer to operate, or whether they should be arbiters of, of the truth, if you want to say that. Well, truth, OK, that's a subjective concept, but I do think that journalists should be arbiters of accuracy, and, and that's actually another fundamental tenet of journalism. So I would suggest that reflecting... Which is not much other than propaganda from vested interests. I would suggest that it fails that tenet. Yeah, I think the um, you know the, the clear message from from Dave's book really, and he summarises the science in, of 1080 um, incredibly well. But really, the overall message is in those final chapters where 
we see this amazing initiative that's starting, but incredibly underfunded, you know, in terms of the, the lofty goals that uh, we've set ourselves here. So what is the, the future of our relationship with our environment? One of the points made very eloquently uh, in the book by the scientist Marie Brown is that we don't really know about the value of biodiversity in New Zealand and what could be achieved, as Dave said earlier, if we can get rid of some of these pests, the benefits that could result from that. So that, so that's, a, again, another discussion that we need to have in New Zealand, that we, we have seen this through the lens of doing business and what the environment can do to improve us doing business through tourism or adventure, travel, all that sort of thing. But what are the, the benefits if we can try and achieve this sort of Apollo-like vision that Sir Paul Callaghan had for New Zealand, a pest-free New Zealand? What are the benefits? And economists suggest that it's billions of dollars in additional benefits to the economy. And th- this is powerful stuff. It's, it's, the case is made very well in the book, and lots of scientists we talk with are able to articulate this very well. I'm not sure if the public is aware of the potential, and that's really the next phase if we do want to have a pest-free New Zealand in 2050. One thing we haven't talked about, and I don't know how it fits in, is, is some of the, the, um, the nastiness of the anonymity of things like Facebook, um, which really seems to affect these arguments. You get an awful lot of really vitriolic stuff back through those um, mediums that you didn't, that you don't get, you don't even get face to face, and it. It really it has a great effect on how these debates are carried out. I'm, I'm not sure what it means or where we go with it, but it's something that really concerns me. And, and then a sort of follow-on what Peter said in a way, we've, we end up with this kind of simple choice with wanting to go with our predator-free visions. If we want to do that, we're going to have to use a whole lot of technologies, we're going to have to use gene stuff, and we're going to have to use poisons. And so we've just got this horrible choice about we either have the wildlife or we have these, these nasty things that some of us don't like. Um, but we've, we've got to come to grips with that choice. Yeah, I think Graham's right. And I, and I personally see um, predator-free New Zealand as um, a grand unifying vision. I think personally it's a, um, nothing short of a blueprint for nationhood. Um, finally, perhaps we can all agree, you know, we don't, um, let's stop arguing about flags and things and, and, and start celebrating what makes us really unique. But I do think that just as Graham and his colleagues will have to um, <clears throat> practically double down on, on you know, the amount of research that they're doing around that kind of stuff, uh, how the um, pest control startups will obviously redouble their efforts uh, in coming up with new technology um, and the work of, of Peter and the Science Media Centre in disseminating all the results of that research, I do think there's uh, a good case uh, and a glaring need for um, a concurrent um, program, if you like, of what I would call psychosocial research. I think we do need to get to grips with uh, the nature of science denial, what it is, and its close cousin conspiracy theory. I think it behoves us to try to understand those phenomena. Where is it coming from? We know they're on the rise. And what are their implications for these really genuine think big projects like Predator Free? A big thank you to the three panellists on this Our Changing World Summit. You heard writer Dave Hansford, whose book Protecting Paradise spurred the conversation. Graham Elliott is a scientist with the Department of Conservation, and Peter Griffin is director of the Science Media Centre. 
You'll find a longer version of our conversation and a link to an earlier Our Changing World program on the science of 1080 at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. That's all for now, but you can stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're RNZ Science. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.